We're going to jump into this little book called Jude. It's one of those books that uh, people perhaps overlook. Um, it's just one chapter. That's why if you ever see uh, Jude and then a number beside it, you're like, well, what, chap what verse? Well, there's just one chapter, so you normally just put Jude and then the verse that you're referring to. You can put Jude 1 and a verse, but it's not necessary since it only has one chapter, right? Um, we will notice as we go through this that there are a number of similarities between Jude and 2 Peter, which is uh, really another reason why uh, I have taught them together, and I'm going to do that again. We just got through with 2 Peter, and so we're going to go to Jude. Um, Although Jude comes after 2 Peter, many commentators think that 2 Peter actually uh, has material that comes from Jude and not the other way around. However, uh, I'm going to say that I am not in agreement with that because there is a passage in Jude that refers to uh, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ saying that scoffers will come, and that's exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter and he is an apostle, Jude nowhere claims to be an apostle. Um, now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't uh, recognized in the church, and we're going to find out in just a moment that there are uh, some important reasons that he was recognized in the church. But before we get started, I'm going to uh, pray, and then I'm going to read through this. And uh, since I went ahead and started the stream already, I'll take prayer requests at the end, all right? So let's uh, come together in prayer. Father, I want to ask you now to open up your word and I ask you that we'll be receptive, that uh, we will uh, be malleable, we'll allow you to shape us and mold us. And uh, I, I pray that we don't just look at this word as being something that is uh, a theory or uh, a history lesson, but that we realize that this is the the living and powerful word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, and will allow it to penetrate to the deepest part of our heart, dividing even uh, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And uh, I pray that we'll do what you say, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, the passage will be up here on the screen, and if you're watching online, you'll see it um, in one of these corners. I can't remember where I put it. And uh, so you can follow along there. I'm going to read uh, Jude, the entire book, <laughs> one chapter, uh, from the English Standard Version. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasonable, unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. 
shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there would be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen? So... That's a harsh letter, isn't it? <laughs> That's not one of those encouraging letters. It's a warning. It's a stern warning about those who would infiltrate a church and seek to turn people away to their own ideas. Now, this particular group of people um, are obviously very similar, if not the same group of wandering itinerant uh, teachers that uh, Peter was writing to in 2 Peter. They're, they're focused on their own dreams, right? And they promote sensuality. They promote, obviously, forms of sexual indulgence. And uh, they are encouraging God's people to follow that path rather than the clear teaching that had been passed on to them. So I think that when we look at the ideology that is creeping into the church today, then we can see a very clear application, right? So let's take a look at this. Um, the opening of the letter conforms to the standard style of letters written in the ancient Jewish world. So it's an actual letter, and it was intended to be passed around and read, but we don't know. We don't have a particular group that's listed. If we did, it probably wouldn't be called Jude. It would be called by the title of the uh, the group to which it was written. But all of these letters eventually um, became uh, mobile, if you will. They were passed around. They were circular letters, even if they were written to one particular church. And we know that because we're still reading them and passing them around, aren't we? So we're doing the same thing. And as I mentioned to you previously, uh, the earliest um, written copies of Ephesians don't have to the Ephesians in it. And Ephesians as a letter doesn't have any personal comments about any of the folks in Ephesus, although Paul spent over two years there. So what we think happened is that Ephesians was a general circular letter, very theological letter, and, and also uh, very, very practical as far as uh, teaching about morality is concerned, that it was kept in Ephesus. They were the, the ones who maintained it and ensured that there were copies that were available. Uh, and so eventually, the, the N Ephesus was added, right? Well, I say N, it's, it's the Greek word epsilon nu, right? Uh, which in this case would mean to Ephesus, right? To the Ephesian. In any event, what I'm trying to get at is that uh, Jude is a circular letter, right? So unlike 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that are called 1 and 2 Timothy because they were written to Timothy, Jude is called Jude because it's written by Jude. Just like 1 Peter and 2 Peter are called 1 and 2 Peter because they are attributed to Peter. Does that make sense? Whereas a letter like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is named because that's the audience that it was written to, right? All right. Um, 
The letter follows the pattern of a really just a practical sermon, which intends to warn the recipients concerning false teachers and their doctrine. So it's a stern warning. Richard Baucom of the Word Biblical Commentary on Jude calls uh, the little letter, quote, an epistolary sermon. That is a work whose main content could have been delivered as a homily. A homily is a, just an exegesis of passages of Scripture could be delivered as a homily if Jude and his readers had been able to meet, but which has been cast in a letter form so that it can be communicated to readers whom Jude could not visit in person. Now, providentially speaking, this is the word of God. We talk about, you know, the author, but the, the author we want to look to is the Holy Spirit. When you read the Bible, we can understand these facts about authorship and origin and time of writing and all of these other things. But we want to rise above that and say the reason that this has been preserved is because it's God's word. It's God who spoke to and through that author. So you always want to be reading the word of God with this question in your mind. Lord, what are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to say to me, Lord? What do I need to learn from this? So I'm going to teach you all this practical stuff because I want you to understand that we need to understand some historical facts so that we don't get uh, the interpretation wrong, so that we don't do what a lot of people do, do, and they just kind of grab things out of context and create their own ideas, right? I mean, we got people today, they're false teachers in churches, and they're taking the word out of context, and they're, they're changing things and reinventing it and turning it around and making it say what it doesn't say. And this is why... When you come to this church, I read a lot of scripture, don't I? I read two full chapters on Sunday morning. I read the whole chapter. I read the entirety of Daniel chapter 3, right? And then um, well, I had a, uh, a video that read half of um, Psalm 95, and then I read the entirety of Hebrews chapter 3, which has the other half of Psalm. So that's three entire chapters of scripture you got to pay attention to the word. I'm going to do my best to comment on it and give you a homily on it and try to give you direction, but you need to focus on the word. And I just don't think that a lot of people read a lot of scripture. And again, this is why I send these passages of scripture out every day to people. I don't send a verse. I send whole chapters out, right? I want you to get into the word. I want you to say, God, what are you trying to say to me today? Give me some direction. Help me to understand your word. So that's where we're at with this. All right, so let's look at the first two verses, this opening. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, right? All right, so I went and translated the Greek there, and this is a more literal translation, although ESV is pretty literal, but you'll see when you hear what I, I, how I translated this, I just followed even the word order pretty much. Judas of Jesus Christ, a slave and brother of James, to those in Father God, loved by Jesus Christ, protected, called. Mercy to you and peace, to, and peace and love multiplied. So a lot of times uh, we get the Greek and we bring it over and we smooth it out and we try to make it uh, make more sense to an English reader. And that's good. The uh, version of scripture that I read out of on Sunday morning is the New Living Translation. And it really does that. It tries to get it to flow the way English speakers think. All right. What I just read to you is essentially the order. First of all, it starts out Judas. We call him Jude, but his name is Judas. Jude is just a shortened version of that. And we call him Jude because we don't want to confuse him with who? Yeah, Judas Iscariot. But Judas was a very common name, and it wasn't an evil name, right? So this is one of Jesus' brothers. That's why he was initially recognized. He was one of Jesus' brothers, okay? Um, he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, though, and a brother of James, right? So... Um, it is widely believed that uh, Jude, a variant of Judas, was one of Jesus Christ's brothers, all of whom are mentioned in Mark 6.3 and Matthew 13.55. So you want to mark that down. And as I've told you before, 
the majority of Mark is contained in Matthew. So you will often have um, uh, identical passages in Mark and Matthew because Matthew essentially expands on Mark. Okay, He expands on Mark. He adds uh, uh, scripture, Old Testament scripture, and so forth. Jude doesn't call himself a brother, but rather a servant of Jesus and a brother to James. Well, James, as mentioned here, without any other identifier, without a, a, you know, a, any other appellative, would have been uh, James, so-called James the Just, that is, the, the pastor of the Jerusalem church in the first century. Well, that James was Jesus' brother as well. We know that. So, by way of extension, if Jude is James's brother and James is Jesus's half-brother, then Jude is Jesus's brother as well, okay? Um, we'll look at the passage that names the brothers of Jesus in just a moment, all right? Um, all right, so James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, is also the author of that book of James. It's very close to where we're at right now at the, toward the end of the uh, New Testament, but it's uh, an eponymous book. It's named after the author, once again, James, okay? Um, but I want you to notice that even though both Jude and James are half-brothers of Jesus, and I say half-brother because who is Jesus' father? Who was Jesus' father? Was Joseph Jesus' biological father? No. Remember the virgin birth? You know, it's Christmas and all of that other stuff. Okay. Joseph wanted to put Mary away. Why did he want to put Mary away? Well, because she was pregnant. And so, yeah, he's like, you know what? I love her, but I can't deal with adultery like this. And she said, no, no, this baby's from the Holy Spirit. And I, you know, uh, a friend of mine and I together, largely him and I did some tweaking and editing, have written a scene that's part of a uh, larger play that I was going to do this year before COVID ruined everything. Um, but uh, it, it imagines what that situation might have been like between Joseph and Mary when she broke the news, right? It probably wasn't something that uh, was uh, um, encouraging. It was probably heartrending. It was probably discouraging to her. It probably hurt Mary initially, but the same angel Gabriel that came and visited Mary and told her that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her and that the holy child within her would be from the Most High, visited Joseph in a dream and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. Oh, Joseph listened to the angel. He took Mary. Now, back then when they were um, engaged, it was every bit as strong as marriage. In fact, that's why... It says in Matthew that Joseph was going to, quote-unquote, put Mary away. It would be the equivalent of a divorce. Now, today, if you're engaged, you know, I mean, if, uh, the woman gets upset and she just throws the ring at the guy, and that's the end of the whole deal, right? Or it's a really, really nice ring, and she says, we're not getting married, but I'm keeping this, right? You took this many years out of my life, and I'm hanging on to this thing right here. But back then, you essentially had to go through the equivalent of a divorce because that's how strong the, uh, the engagement was considered. Um, but that's the language in, uh, in Matthew. So we're getting around that time of year, so I'll just remind you guys of that. No, Joseph was Jesus' stepfather. That's what I like to say. So Jesus understood our crazy families that we have today, right? And that would make these brothers his, actually his half-brothers, right? Had the same mother, but not the same father. Well, um, what we find is early on, his, Jesus had brothers and sisters, although none of his sisters are mentioned. Strange, okay? But he had, um, and then also, after the birth narrative, uh, actually, beyond that, when Jesus was 12 and they took him to Jerusalem, Joseph is mentioned. But beyond that, he's not mentioned. So most interpreters believe that uh, Joseph died, and that would have been very common uh, in the ancient world. The median age of death in the Roman Empire was 
24. That's because a lot of babies died. A lot of folks, I mean, you think of all of the, all of the childhood diseases that we, we give kids inoculations for mumps and measles and, you know, things that have, well, until the anti-vaxxers came along and now, you know, actually measles is on the rise again. Right. But, uh, these things have been eliminated in the last hundred years. But prior to that, there were a lot of kids that died. Now, if you made it past about 24, then you might make it on up into your 50s or even into your 60s. But what we're saying is a lot of people died when they were much younger than most people today die, all right? So Joseph, in all likelihood, died, and that would have made Jesus the oldest. So he probably functioned somewhat as a father in that household, right? Um, um, but, uh, but Mary is the constant in that situation. Ladies, isn't that always the case? It's the mom that's the constant, right? These crazy men just go here and there and do this and that and don't pay attention and don't think family's as important as their job and whatever, and you're there for the kids, right? So not always, not always. I'm, I'm not being mean to all of us, but um, I know men. All right, so James... Just like we see here, Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus, and James also calls himself a servant of God and of Jesus. Neither one of them is willing to claim their natural relationship as of any significance. Isn't that interesting? They're both Jesus' brothers. Now, this also lends authenticity to these letters, because if these letters were not written, in fact, Jude by Jude, James by James, if they were written by somebody else that wanted to use the names of Jesus' brothers to make that letter seem authentic, well, then they would say that they were his brothers, wouldn't they? Why would they neglect to say that? No, but you have genuine humility coming from Jesus' brothers. They recognized themselves as servants of the Lord Jesus because they recognized that Jesus was more than this physical half-brother that they had, right? That Jesus came from God and was resurrected and went back to God. And so the relationship that they have to him primarily is, you know, the one that you and I have. Jesus is Lord, right? We're his servants. We follow him. He's the leader. I don't ask Jesus to come and do my bidding. I'm here to follow him and do his bidding, right? So they both call themselves that. Um, uh, they were both part of his earthly family, but that becomes unimportant in light of the resurrected Lord's heavenly identity and kingdom. In fact, these very brothers misunderstood him and thought him to be out of his mind in the midst of his surprising earthly ministry. Did you know that? They didn't believe in him while he was, on, while he was during his earthly ministry, in spite of the fact. See, again, I mentioned this on Sunday, but we just all assume or at least maybe it's just me, but I think there's more than just me that, that assumes this, that if we saw a miracle, we'd really believe. And yet we have example after example in Scripture of people that saw miracles and they didn't believe. And that's exactly what happened. You, you had these Pharisees that watched Jesus heal people right and left, and they wanted to kill him because they were jealous of him, because he didn't obey their rules. So if you and I think that if we just saw a miracle, we'd really believe or we'd believe more, we're, we're mistaken. Miracles don't lead to faith. The word of God leads to faith. What does it say in Romans chapter 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right now, you're being given the opportunity to believe as you hear the word of God. If you're paying attention, then you're being given that opportunity to believe. You could see a miracle and you'd be in awe for a day or two, but then you'd probably just be like the Jewish people were, and you know, as would I, and we'd be, you know, well, God, what have you done for me lately, right? So Jesus fed 5,000 people. So a lot of them started following him around. Why? They wanted to see him do it again. In fact, they wanted him to one-up himself. They wanted him to produce manna from heaven. They wanted more miracles. They wanted more food. They weren't looking at the reality that Jesus' miracles were signs that were pointing to the fact that he was the Son of God, right? So, 
here are Jesus' brothers, right? Now, they're younger than him, but surely they have been told the story of the virgin birth. They've been raised in his presence. They know all the miracles that he's doing. And yet, listen to this from Mark 3.21. Jesus has been so busy. I'll give you the the lead up to Mark 3.21. He's been so busy that he hasn't even been able to eat. I mean, he's got crowds around him all the time. He's, you know, constantly... um, teaching people and healing people and helping people. In other words, Jesus doesn't have any time for himself. You can hear his Jewish mother saying, Jesus, yeah, eat something. You need to eat something. What what are you doing, right? Listen to what it says. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Wow. So that kind of dissolves this idea that if we had this unique relationship to Jesus, if we saw him in the flesh, if we saw miracles, we would believe any more than we do now. They didn't believe until after the resurrection. John 7, 5 clearly says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus was also misunderstood and rejected by the people of his hometown of Nazareth. When he stood to read the passage from Isaiah that prophesied about his ministry, They initially overlooked his meaning and the implication of this uh, passage by commenting on his speaking ability. Uh, So he quotes from uh, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the the good news uh, uh, to to the poor. Uh, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to the release to the captives, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, right? So he reads that. When he's done reading that, he rolls up the scroll and he starts speaking to them and it says, Luke 4.22, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? I wonder how many times do you do that? How many times do you focus on the preacher or the teacher rather than the message? Pastor, why are you wearing that weird hat? Because this is what my hair looks like right now. So I wear this weird hat. That's why I'm wearing this weird hat. All right? Or, oh, that preacher is just so amazing. I listen to that. I listen to, I listen to him all the time. That's just, I just can't get up. But do you get the message? Do you get the word? Forget about the messenger. Focus on the message. Amen? That's not to say the messenger is utterly unimportant. It's just to say, it's like, it's like getting a brand new Bible and you're like, mm, I love the smell of this Bible. Isn't it pretty? Look at these pages. They're really nice paper, right? You're missing the point. It's the word of God, whether it's a paper Bible, whether it's on a computer, whether it's on your mobile device or whether you memorized it. It's the word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We need to stop focusing on the messenger and focus on the message, right? Well, that's what these folks were doing. And then uh, Matthew's gospel in speaking about uh, Jesus' uh, ministry to in Nazareth, his very brief ministry in Nazareth, the people of Nazareth said, where did this man get such wisdom and miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? There's Judas, Jude, right? Um, so James was the oldest and Jude was the youngest and aren't all his sisters here with us. Listen to that. All his sisters. He had more than one. When, when they say all his sisters, probably more than two. And we never hear anything about them. Isn't his mother named Mary? Right. Um, but Jesus said to them, uh, where did he get all this? And so they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own house, and he did not do many. He did not do many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. I wonder: Are you waiting for the Lord to do a miracle in your life? Are you waiting for Him to do something that is beyond your power and ability to accomplish? Do you trust Him? Amen. Yep, and that's exactly what we have to do. Amen. That we got to keep trusting him. 
Well, what a difference the resurrection made because these same brothers that didn't believe in him suddenly became his servants. And if church tradition holds true, um, all of the brothers became missionaries and they went and proclaimed the gospel throughout the world. And there's all kinds of stories about them. Well, I, I see a little lesson here. Have you ever heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt? Right? The more you think you know somebody, oh, that's old so-and-so. That's just, that's just old Pastor D. We know him. I've been around him. I've seen him. I know exactly. This is why I really, really strongly encourage people to call me pastor. I didn't used to do that. But what I discovered is I had all of these young people in my church, and I was friends with them and everything, but this contempt crept in, this unwillingness to be respectful. Well, you're going to see in a minute, this isn't about just respecting spiritual authority or just respecting a pastor. It's really about respecting one another, right? Respecting who we are to each other, all right? Familiarity breeds contempt. We may be inclined to feel that our past or even present familiarity with a person equates to knowledge of their ways or some sort of an understanding of the thoughts and intentions of their heart. And in short, oh, we know who you really are. We're your family. We know who you really are, okay? You pretend all those other people, but we know who you really are. Well, this couldn't be further from the truth. Often, I don't even know who I am. Really? Yep. Much less those around me. Only God really knows a person's heart. Amen? Amen. Only God really knows a person's heart. And once you come to Christ, Colossians, I quote this again and again to you, right? It says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. If you want to see who you really are, quit looking at how you feel at the moment. That's just how you feel at the moment. Quit looking in the mirror. The mirror's not going to give you a true story either, all right? And if I look in my heart, my heart can be confused, can be deceived. No, I need to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, right? Because my real life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's really good news because I'm going to lose this earthly life at some point in the future. But I know he's got me saved right? I'm saved. That's what that means. What did the Apostle Paul say? I know him in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. You can take this earthly life, but you can't really take me, right? That's why we can continue to serve the Lord no matter what, right? That's why uh, in Revelation chapter 12, it says, when it's talking about uh, overcoming the dragon, Satan, it says they overcame him um, by uh, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even so much as to shrink from death. Wow. That's how they overcame him. By the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not... uh, They were not afraid to die, essentially, right? So if I'm not afraid to lose my earthly life, then there's nothing anybody can take from me, is there? I'm just going to keep following Jesus, right? Um, So uh, let me get back to my notes here. Only God really knows a person's heart, and only God knows what he created each person to be and what he's called them to do. Maybe you don't even know what you've been called to be and to do, but God does. The scripture says a tree is known by his fruit. You and I cannot see its roots, but we can taste its fruit. We know it has roots if it's alive, but we can't see its roots, right? So somebody could have come in and stripped all the bark off a tree and painted it a different color and You know, maybe they haven't killed it yet. It's still alive. And maybe they decorated it like a Christmas tree. But that doesn't mean that it's anything other than what it was intended to be, what it was originally, uh, what it originally grew to be. Well, 
what am I getting at here? There's a whole lot of people that come to church and decorate themselves like Christmas trees and call themselves Christians, but they're not producing any fruit. And that's what we have with these false teachers. They had infiltrated a church and they were smiling and flattering people and making everybody believe that uh, they were one of the Christians, but their purpose was to lead Christians astray. Now I'll tell you a little story. This is not intended to put a particular group down, but to make you abundantly aware of something that does in fact go on, or at least it did some years ago. When I was in the colony, Texas, I was the youth minister at First Baptist Church, and a couple of Mormon missionaries started coming to our youth events. Now, these are the nicest guys in the world, okay? They look like Adrian. They're about his age. They're really nice like him, all right? They always dress in white shirts and ties and ride bicycles, and you're not allowed to know their last names. They're just called Elder and their first name. But they were just the nicest people in the world. But they were infiltrating my youth group with the intention of picking off some of these kids and taking them over to the Mormon church. Listen, I don't care if you're in an Orthodox church. That ain't right. It would be like, it would be like me saying, you know what? Our youth group's not big enough. Hmm. I think I'm going to go over there to First Baptist and see if I can pick off some of their youth and bring them over here. That's not right. You know, wow, we don't have much of a singles ministry, but you know, that other church does. I think I'm just going to start going to their singles ministry and see if I can get some of their people to come over here. I've seen this again and again. People will come to an event and then they start inviting our members to come to their church. Well, you know, that's fine if that's what you want to do, but I wouldn't go to somebody else's church and invite them to come here. In fact, I always tell people, if you're involved in your church, go to your church. If the Lord's calling you here, then that's great. You're welcome here. But, you know, that's, well, we in the business call that sheep stealing. That's what we call it. All right. Um, so uh, you can taste the fruit even if you can't see the roots. Before you judge someone unworthy of honor just because you think you know them, test and taste the fruit they produce, right? Also, we should accord one another with respect at all times. That's really what I wanted to get across, okay? It's not just about calling me Pastor Daryl, all right? And this Pastor D thing, believe it or not, that just, I didn't invent that. I had teenagers that started calling me D back in the 80s. I didn't know where they, I didn't know where it came from. Hey, D. I go, okay, that's fine. So when I started the church, I thought, well, we can kind of go both ways. You know, you can be respectful, but you can also kind of be more familiar. So you can call me Pastor D or Pastor Daryl or Pastor Hall. I've known Craig Wilson since he was 12. All right. But I refer to him when you guys are around as Pastor Craig or Mr. Wilson. When he's in my karate class, uh, I, I found that there's a, there's a title that applies to him. Uh, a senior student in a karate class is called senpai, right? So he's the senior student in our class. I call him senpai. Uh, you know, I can say, oh, that's old Craig. I've known Craig since he was little. When he was little, I used to call him Craiger. So here's this, you know, father of four kids, right? Assistant principal has, you know, a master's degree, has almost enough hours to get a master's degree in education and all this. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to call him Crager. <laughs> you know, I, we're like that. We're real close. I, I'm not going to do that. I don't think it's right. Right. And in fact, even in our most intimate relationships, we're taught to continue to show respect. That's what Peter said concerning husband and wife relationships, right? He said, uh, you know, that Sarah called Abraham Lord. And he said, you should no less respect your husband in the same way. Uh, we need to continue to show this kind of honor to one another. And uh, I think that's a lesson that we can learn from the fact that the half-brother of Jesus refused to even call himself his brother, but called himself his servant, right? And we're supposed to uh, serve one another. The passage that I may preach from Sunday morning um, is Ephesians chapter 5, 
and it concludes with give thanks in all things at all times. Appropriate, right? Since Thanksgiving is next week. Speaking of which, just a little aside, we're not going to have this Bible study next Wednesday, okay? Because it's the day before Thanksgiving. I don't know how many people are going to be doing this, that, and the other thing. So we'll skip next Wednesday, and then we have three Wednesdays in December leading up to Christmas. We'll finish Jude, and then we won't do the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's, and then we'll start again in the new year. And we might go to James in the new year. That would be appropriate after Jude, right? The other half-brother of Jesus. That's a very practical letter as well, all right? Um, So uh, one of the things I've mentioned before, and I actually, this was, uh, I I, uh, recited a quote from Billy Graham during uh, Pastor Craig and Rachel's wedding. I officiated their wedding back in 05, 06. And uh, one of the the quotes that I uh, brought into their wedding was from Billy Graham. And he talked about the fact that the reason that he and his wife had had such a successful marriage for so many years was because of their close relationship to Jesus and the fact that they had separate bathrooms. Well, you know, you find ways to respect each other. That's what that amounts to. You just find ways to respect each other, whatever that is in your personal relationships. Um, the key is respect, and then you will find a way to maintain that respect. If they're constantly doing something to irritate you rather than complain about it, find a way so that that is no longer an irritation, right? You know, if he's always throwing his laundry at the foot of the bed, go buy a hamper and put it at the foot of the bed. And say, honey, now it's going to be easier for you. All you got to do is just play a little basketball right there. Just play a little hoop. You see what I'm saying? We can just do all sorts of things to help each other out, all right? Um, In the end, uh, this should extend everywhere, even to the privacy of the home. Never say or do anything to dishonor your spouse, your children, or even yourself. Don't dishonor yourself. Do you want to hear why familiarity breeds contempt? Because we don't know how to treat ourselves. We don't receive the love of God and receive his honor. A lot of the times, our arrogance and pride is just a cover for the reality that we don't feel appreciated, that we don't feel good enough, that we don't feel um, approved that we don't feel we get the recognition that we need. We all do things that we don't like. We set high standards for ourselves, and we don't attain those standards. And so I, I have a habit of yelling at myself all the time. I know that sounds weird to you, right? I, you're so much better than me. Um, <laughs> if, if you would have paid attention when I came in the door earlier today, right as I was preparing for this Bible study, this has been you know a couple hours, three hours ago now. Um, I get sidetracked. Okay, I'm thinking about what I'm doing, and I, I forget. I didn't turn off the alarm, so I got all the way across the room, and the alarm starts going off. I'm blurting. I said, "I'm not kidding." I just tell you what I, I said, Daryl Hall. What is wrong with you? And they turn around and walk over and shut the alarm off. But this is why familiarity breeds contempt, because you start treating other people the way you treat yourself. Right? That's the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Oh, wait. Not the way I am treating myself. The way I want to be treated. Do I want to be treated like that? Hmm? No. And then Jesus kicked it up another level. He said, love one another the way I have loved you. So what I need to do is I need to stop loving myself and loathing myself and looking at myself, I need to start looking to Jesus. That's how I'm going to find out who I am, what I've been called to be, who I've been called to be like, where I've been called to go. That's how I'm going to find out how much I'm loved is by looking to Jesus. And that's how I'm going to have respect for other people. You will have as much respect for others as you are willing to have for yourself. We don't respect others oftentimes because we just don't respect ourselves. So respect yourself. Respect yourself enough not to put yourself in bad situations, harmful situations, right? Um, this, is, this is a reason to, uh, you know, 
dress a certain way. This is a reason to take care of yourself physically. Um, this is a reason to eat right. All of these things. It's self-respect. We should have self-respect because God has respect for you. He loves you. He cares for you. And I need to look to that image to determine what I'm to be like. And it makes me a better person constantly, always, right? Just remember, um, never talk behind someone's back, no matter how upset you may be with them, right? That's disrespectful. It's just disrespectful. You may be blowing off steam when you talk behind someone's back, but it's disrespectful. And this is something you ought to think about. Remember that spreading unsubstantiated gossip and rumor about anyone, even if you think you know them, is bearing false witness. It's a lie. Well, I just think that, no, you don't know. Bearing false witness is giving testimony about somebody that is not explicitly true. Well, I bet it is. You don't know it is. And you're spreading it to harm that person. And as the result, you are breaking that command, the ninth commandment, right? Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's what gossip and rumors are, man. They, they really are. Um, it's lying, and that's sin. So disrespect is dirty. Don't play in the toilet. That's what I say. And certainly don't flush someone's reputation because your own anger because of your own anger, jealousy, and pride, right? Um, let's very quickly look at verse three, and then we'll be done for today. And that gives us a broad introduction. Like I said, we won't be here next Wednesday, but we will be the following Wednesday, right? Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude had intended to write them an encouraging letter. But now he found, finds the need to encourage them to stand up for their faith. You and I are in a place right now where this is absolutely applicable and relevant. You've got to stand up for your faith because people right now are turning away from the faith and they're changing the nature of the faith and the character of the faith. They're turning it into something other than a biblical faith. Um, Jesus Christ stated clearly, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And of Jesus, it is written, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Christianity is an historical faith, not a hysterical religion. You know what hysteria is? It's very emotional. Oh, I'm feeling this, and I'm offended, and I don't know what, you know. Christianity is not a hysterical religion right now. That doesn't mean that there aren't emotions that uh, attend to that. When we fall in love, there are emotions, but love is a decision. It's a determination, okay? When you come to church, there may be emotion, emotions that are, that are uh, attendant, right? You, you have a, a praise service, and you, you, you may be the type of person that raises your hand or the type of person that you know, bows your knee or, or you know, bows your head or you respond emotionally, but we're not following the emotions. The emotions are following the faith, which is following the truth. Amen? It's the truth of God. It's the word of God, followed by faith, followed by feelings. But what happens with hysterical religion is it's crazy feelings that I have. And then I have my faith in those feelings, and then I go and search out a text so that I can justify it. It's all backwards, right? I'm looking for scripture to basically justify my feelings. But as soon as my feelings change, then my supposed faith changes. I've mentioned this a number of times, but um, there was a group of young men in this church at one point in time that were, quote unquote, on fire for the Lord. And I can remember when we had a big youth group, uh, back when Pastor Craig was our youth minister, we had a huge youth group. In fact, we had to have two worship services because one worship service was pretty much all youth. Um, and, uh, I can remember we were doing an event one Halloween. We always try to take the, you know, times of year and holidays and so forth that are not glorifying to God and turn them around. And so we had an event here. I can't remember what all we were doing. Uh, 
and uh, there were several of these young men that were there. It was right about where you are, Thomas. I was standing right there, and I can remember these young men gathered around me, and they put their hands on me to pray for my ear. You all know that I have this problem with my ear. Um, and they were very, very sincere, right? And I can remember one of them looking at me, and it was almost like, you know, just he had just like a sheen on his face. He was looking at me. He said, okay, well, what happened? Did anything happen? And, you know, I wanted to believe, of course, you know, but, uh, you know, the Lord's going to heal my ear, but I may have to get to the other side before it happens. I don't know. The, the scripture says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So just because you can't walk or you can't hear or your body doesn't all work the way it needs to work doesn't mean that you're full of sin and something's wrong with you or whatever. No, we're all here to learn and to grow, and this is what I've got but I was willing to let him pray for me. And, you know, nothing happened, but it's okay. It's cool. I'll, I'll let anybody pray for me, really. And I'll try to believe I want the Lord to take this away, you know, but so long story short, within two years, they were all gone and they're all atheists now. It's sad. It's very sad because they were very, very nice young men. They were very, they were very emotional. Um, and for all intents and purposes, they appeared to be very sincere. They appeared to be very strong in their faith. But I think that their faith was too emotionally driven. In fact, uh, if you look on the back back there, you see that there's two paintings. They look almost like stained glass. Those are two panels of four panels that used to be up here on the wall. And you might not be able to tell, that's an O right there. That's an I right there. I just have them hanging there because I think they're pretty. But they, they spelled out the name of our church at the time, which was Zion, Z-I-O-N. And there was a lady, a young lady that painted those. She was on fire for the Lord too. Yeah, she's an atheist now as well. When your faith is in something other than Christ who never changes, then you can lose your faith. And by the way, that's what Jude is about. Jude is about losing your faith. So you can learn a lot from this particular book. We have to contend for our faith, not lose our faith. Listen to this quote from Michael Green in the Tyndale New Testament commentary. He said, apostolic teaching, whatever be the current theological fashion, is the hallmark of authentic Christianity. The once for allness of the apostolic faith is inescapably bound up with the particularity of the incarnation in which God spoke to men through Jesus once for all. See, Jesus is a historical person. He is God who literally became a human being, who literally, physically died on the cross, who was actually factually taken down off the cross and buried in the new tomb of a, a well-known wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, who on the third day, on Sunday, when the women went out to the tomb, was actually factually gone and actually appeared to those women and to all of the apostles and at one point to over 500 men at one time. This is the only way that Christianity could have spread in the Roman world is if it had this kind of foundation, this kind of basis, right? So, it is a historical faith, and we need to base our, our faith, right? The, the faith in that sense is, is a, a noun referring to the content of the faith. We need to base our, what we believe in on that actual factual historical truth. So stop reading feel-good articles and life hacks. Be careful, even sparing, in reading books about the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the book. Steep yourself in the scriptures. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you insight. Choose carefully who your Bible teachers are. Don't just listen to anybody and everybody. There's liars out there. There's people teaching heresy out there. There's people teaching half-truths, and they may be fully convinced of what they're, they're teaching, but the more you become familiar with the truth, the easier it is to spot a lie, right? Um, Innovation and novelty are not what we seek when we're learning theology and doctrine. We don't want a new idea about God. We want the ancient of days. Amen? We want an apostolic faith and nothing less and nothing more. That 
He has the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. It's not added to. In fact, you go to, I've got Revelation open right now because it's the very next, uh, it's the very next book after Jude. So if I go to Revelation, very last chapter, and I go to the last verses in Revelation, want to hear what they are? Last verses in the last book in the Bible. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which, were, which are described in this book. This applies to the word of God. This applies to the Christian faith. Jesus is the final revelation of God to human beings, right? All prophecy, the scripture says, in fact, this is in Revelation as well, is the, the content of prophecy is going to be focused on Jesus, right? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what it says. So prophecy that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus isn't prophecy. It's nonsense, right? Three examples of false teaching widely embraced, not just by the world, but by so-called Christians. In 2006, countless cultural Christians were led astray by Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which although it was a novel, and a novel by definition is a work of fiction, it claimed to portray historical places and facts accurately. The insidious purpose of this novel was to retell the Christian history. According to Dan Brown's history, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. They had a child, or maybe children, and Jesus' original intent was to pass the church along through them, not the disciples. Well, this is actually based on a much older heresy that came about in the Middle Ages in France. But new books retell old heresies. The sad thing is, there were a whole lot of cultural Christians, nominal Christians, that bought into this garbage. There are still people today that buy into this stuff. In 2012, when Mitt Romney ran for president, you forgot all about him, didn't you? <laughs> there was a strong campaign among evangel evangelical Christians to embrace Mormonism as just another denomination. Mitt Romney wasn't just or isn't just a Mormon. He's a very strong and leading Mormon and a teacher in the church. Um, now, Mormons can be some of the nicest people in the world, so I'm not trying to put down any particular person. But Mormonism is not anything close to Christianity. The imagery might sound the same, the way they talk might sound the same, but Mormonism is polytheism. Do you know what polytheism is? It's the worship of many gods. In fact, Mormonism perpetuates one of the oldest lies that is found in the scripture. This is the lie that Satan told to Eve when he said, you can become a god. That's what Mormons believe. Mormons believe that the God of our planet was once a man. In fact, some of them believe he was even once Adam. Further, they believe that if you work hard enough, you can be the God of your own planet. Does that sound anything like the God of the Bible to you? The God that created the universe out of nothing? The God that spoke it all into existence? This is not the same God. This is not the same religion. Nice people completely misled but I'm supposed to be nice and say, well, it's just, another, it's just another denomination of Christianity. It's not even Christianity. But a lot of people embrace that. You still have people today that think Mormonism is a denomination of Christianity. In 2015, in the wake of the Obor Obergefell Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage, many evangelical Christians turned away from the clear teaching of Jesus and the Bible to embrace and celebrate perversion of sex and marriage that God did not create or ordain. Now, this has extended itself to support in support for transgenderism and transsexuality to the degree that people are willing to sacrifice their children to gender dysphoric confusion. Have you seen these, these uh, transgender folk reading stories to children in the library? Now, so it's one thing, you know, you're, you're confused and you think that you're not the, uh, the sex that you were born. But I mean, I saw one picture 
And this is not just a man dressing as a woman. This was like bizarre. This person had horns sticking out of their head. This is what you're exposing your kids to? No, friends. This is, this is disturbing. And you can call me narrow. You can tell me on the wrong side of history, but I'm not going to get on the wrong side of eternity. I'm going to love every transgender person. I'm going to love every homosexual person. And I'm going to tell them the truth. Just like I'm going to tell the truth to myself in the mirror, and I'm going to tell you the truth. We're not changing the word of God just because the culture changes. And I'm guaranteeing you some of the false teaching that has made its way into the church today is very similar to what Jude was facing. And as we get deeper into the book, you're going to see it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. It mentions that they went after strange flesh. God designed man. God designed woman. God designed there to be a relationship between a man and a woman that cannot be had between two women or two men, period. That's in your design. So someone who would say, God made me this way, they misunderstand God or they don't worship God. So you and I need to hold the line. We need to hang on to the truth, right? Now, I've jumped into these issues again recently um, because I can see what's coming. I know who's coming into office. I know what was promoted previously when this same administration essentially was in office. And now uh, Democrats have moved further to the left and this has accelerated. So if you're going to hold on to biblical morality, then you're going to endure some persecution. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Amen. So I'm going to continue to love everybody, and I'm going to continue to preach the truth in love. Amen? Amen? All right. God bless you guys. Appreciate you.